Psalm 48. We'll read it together. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Uh, we are focusing this morning on Psalm 48, and I really encourage you uh, to turn to that psalm. And so I've been making references to it. Uh, the psalm has been read, and I think that the heart, the key verse here that sort of pulls it all together is verse 8, which is near the center of the psalm. These words, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. A dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, currently at the seminary here in Riga, I'm teaching a course on the doctrine of the church. And uh, obviously there's a lot of tie-ins with the church in this psalm. Now, it's rather remarkable that uh, the mount that is called Zion would receive such high praise in the Bible. If any of you have ever been to Israel, to Palestine, and you've seen the city of Jerusalem, and especially Mount Zion, it is not a remarkably impressive hill. If you cross the Kidron Valley to the east, the Mount of Olives is actually about 200 feet, what is that, 60, 65, 70 meters higher. The Mount of Olives is actually higher, so when you're on the Mount of Olives, you're kind of looking down on Mount Zion. In fact, one person said about Mount Zion, it's more of a pimple of a hill than really any kind of an impressive mountain. And yet the psalmist says, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth. What's going on here? Well, Psalm 48 is one of the so-called Zion Psalms. Like Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, or Psalm 76. 
God's abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. For Psalm 87, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Or Psalm 122, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now these are inspired songs that recall the central place that Zion has in the life of the people of God. Why? Because here is where the temple was built. That shrine, that beautiful shrine built by Solomon, where God came to, to live. Here were the throne of David, the thrones where the Davidic rulers would govern the people of God and make decisions, uh, establish justice for the people of God. And this was the city to which faithful Israelites would travel on pilgrimage to celebrate Pentecost or Passover or the Feast of Booths. And the theme of this psalm can be best summarized this way. The Lord is the true strength of his city. And as I said, verse 8 is really, it seems to me, the thematic center of this psalm. God's people have heard this truth, but they've also seen it. They've seen it. The city that belongs to God is the city that God has established forever. Now, the psalm is nicely divided, it seems to me, in four stanzas. Now, scholars aren't agreed on where the, the divisions are for the stanzas, but it seems like verses 1 through 3, from 4 through 7, 9 through 11, 12 to 14 is probably the best way to divide the psalm into its stanzas. First then, verses 1 through 3. Notice how the psalm starts. Great is the Lord. Of course, praise for our God arises within the city of the great king. Even Jesus would refer to Jerusalem in Matthew 5 as the city of the great king. Now, Jerusalem was once a very proud and defiant city of the Jebusites. In fact, they taunted David, said, even the blind and lame could defend this city. Come and attack us. So David does, and he captures it. And then he moves the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And it becomes the city of David. And he hopes he wants to build a shrine, a temple there for the Lord's for the Lord's dwelling. Think of it. Solomon will do the actual building of the temple, but then the Lord God in his glory comes. He sort of interrupts the liturgy of dedication. I mean, the priests have to stop as the Lord moves into the holy of holies, the most holy place. The transcendent and distant great God comes to dwell with his people to live in their midst. It's Emmanuel. God is with us. He has made Jerusalem the capital of the kingdom of God on earth. On earth, not in heaven, but on earth. That's where his capital is. Emmanuel in the form of a temple, a shrine 
but also in the city, its citadels. And that is why Mount Zion is beautiful in elevation. Not because of its height. We said it's already uh, lower, shorter than Mount of Olives. It's beautiful in elevation, not because of its mass as a mountain. It's beautiful in elevation because Yahweh, the Lord, lives there. That's why it has beauty. It is the joy of all the earth because the great and holy God, the one who cannot be contained in any temple, in fact, Solomon says the heavens cannot contain you. Even the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. But he condescends and chooses to put his glory in this temple. But what is more, verse 3, three says, he's made himself known as a fortress. Great is Yahweh. Great is the Lord. He is with us, not in any kind of weakness, but in his great power and strength. He is the fortress for Zion, the city of the great king. Now this all paves the way then for stanza 2, verses 4 through 7. The city of the great king has enemies. Hmm. Not everyone in this world is a friend of grace. God and his people are not universally loved in this world. Imagine that. Imagine that. And then Psalm 2 comes to mind, doesn't it? Why? Why in the world are the nations raging? Why do the peoples imagine a vain and empty thing? They take counsel together saying, let us overthrow Yahweh and let us break his bonds against us. Let us get rid of the Messiah. As if thinking the rule of God has chained them, has imprisoned them, as if the rule of God is oppressive. Let us break their bonds and overthrow the Lord. How does heaven react in Psalm 2? There's two reactions of God to the revolt of the nations. First, he laughs. Come on, make my day. Then he gets angry. And he says, this is my decree. I have, uh, this is my son. I have placed him on Zion, my holy hill. And therefore, if the nations would be wise, kiss the son, lest he becomes angry and you perish in the way. In other words, Psalm 48, verses 4 and following, tell us that the kings of the earth are not as smart as they think they are. No, they're not. They assemble, verse 4, they assemble, they gather the horses, then they make their moves against the city of the great king. But when they see the city, they are astounded. They're panicked. They run away in fright. They tremble and they shake in fear. Uh, some of you remember from your high school Latin what um, Julius Caesar wrote. Wayne. Weedy, weedy. I came, I saw, I conquered. Three words in which he boasts of his military power. I came, I saw, okay, I conquered. That's not the experience of these royal enemies of the great king. How do they? They came, they saw, they lost. 
They lost. They panicked. And they fled. They're very afraid. Now, the Psalms does not tell us which historical events he has in mind when he, when he says this. But in the Bible, we know of a number of instances where this was true. Think of the book of Exodus. The Pharaoh finally, after ten plagues, lets the Israelites go. But then he thinks, there goes the workforce. There goes all the laborers who've been building my cities. I can't let that happen. So he sends his chariots, his finest tanks, are sent to round up those Israelite slaves and bring them back. Now, how many chariots did the Israelites have? How many weapons did they possess? Nothing. Maybe they had their staffs, their, their uh, pilgrim staffs, whatever. They were unarmed, basically. And yet, God opens the way for his people to go out. Dry ground through the Red Sea. The chariots drive themselves into the Dead Sea. You know the story. God brings his waves back on his enemies. And Exodus 14 tells us, and the, Egyptian, the Israelites saw the Egyptian dead, and they believed in Yahweh and in Moses. Later on, 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat hears words that a triple alliance of Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites, are coming around the south side of the Dead Sea, and they're moving on Jerusalem. So what does he do? He calls for a large prayer meeting in Jerusalem. They pray. They lay the matter before the Lord. And then a Levite stands up and prophesies that Israel will not have to fight, for the battle belongs to Yahweh. And what happens? Those enemies, those powerful enemies, <laughs> turn on each other, and they basically destroy each other. God shows himself a fortress in Zion, the great city. Another occasion, you think of the Assyrians, under King Sennacherib, come and surround the city of Jerusalem when Hezekiah uh, is there. And if you ever get to Chicago, I'll take you to the Oriental Institute, because there is a the Sennacherib stele, it's a cylinder. It's written in very small cuneiform. But there he says, I shut up the king of Judah like a bird in a cage. But he doesn't say, and then I captured him. He didn't. The Bible tells us that the Lord sends his angel, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die. King Sennacherib has nothing to do but go home. He flees. He came. He saw. He lost. He left in panic. You see, the kings of the earth assemble their armies and they amass their fleets, and then God sends them running in terror. He destroys their ships. Now, I know that that doesn't always happen in church history. There have been times when the church has been uh, severely persecuted. And yet the church always survives, doesn't it? Rome, you know, launched uh, on different occasions persecutions of God's people, and yet the Roman Empire just collapsed. And what was still standing? The church. The story is told that 
when the Russian Revolution was going on, Vladimir Lenin went, went, went with one of his associates into an Orthodox church. And Lenin said to his associate, you see that old grandma there, the, the babushka, praying. When she's dead, the church will be dead. Well, Mr. Lenin, guess what? That babushka is still in the church praying. Where are you? You're dead. And not only is this old grandma praying, she's been joined by her children and her grandchildren in many instances. Yes, there are young people throughout the world, even in places where they were once persecuted, who are praying to the Lord and worshiping. Why? Because Yahweh has shown himself the fortress, the true strength of his church. Persecution is never pleasant at any time, but the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, isn't it? And why? Because Yahweh is the strength of his church, of his city, not its pastors. They're men of flesh, not its doctrines, as important as they are, not its financial wealth and not its buildings. Yahweh lives as a strong fortress in the midst of his people, and we need to be reminded of that again and again. Because when the lion roars of the enemy, we often hear and see that lion. And so this is why the preaching of the gospel Sunday after Sunday is so necessary for us to have our eyes of faith focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And be reminded that Christ has overcome the world. I mean, John 16. It's before his death and resurrection. It's before that. And Jesus says, you know, in this world you will have tribulation. The kings will amass their armies and come at you. But be of good cheer. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. He is king of kings and lord of lords forever. You know, it, again, it is said in the days of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Luther's right-hand man, uh, Philip Melanchthon, would often become discouraged and depressed and you know, things are not going right, and then Luther would say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and our strength, and ever-present help in time of trouble. He has shown himself the actual strength of his people. And now this leads us then to the third stanza, verses 9 through 11, where the psalm says that we all contemplate the steadfast love of God. What are God's people thinking about? God's commitment, I should hope, I should pray. God's great loyalty in his covenant with his people. And history shows us what that means. God makes a sure promise to his people. And he keeps that promise. But who are his people? Sinners, deserving of his wrath and punishment. Enemies, hostile to him dead in sins and trespasses. But God says, no, I'm going to win the victory. I'm going to win, win the victory over sin, over death, over hell. And so what does he do? He sends his own son, not somebody else's son. That would have been a cheap uh, escape. He sends his own unique, his only begotten son into history who takes the guilt of his people to himself on the cross 
and pays that debt. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. He then conquers death by his resurrection. Christ is risen. Truly he is risen. Risen from the dead. What is more, he pours out his Holy Spirit, Pentecost, so that by that Spirit, dead hearts are removed, living hearts are uh, spiritually placed within us, and then our eyes go open, and we then begin to see the glory of the gospel and the truth. Christ is the strength of his church. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you believe this? You do? <laughs> do you trust Jesus, this Jesus, to accomplish all of this for you? I pray that you do. For God's people back in the Old Covenant era could go to the temple and they could contemplate, they could think about all these things. Now, if the priests of the Old Covenant were doing their job, they would have been teaching the things of God's law, his Torah, properly. But they didn't. And so the people of God in the time of Jeremiah came to trust in the buildings. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is this, Jeremiah 7. And Jeremiah the prophet says, don't say that. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then you go out and you commit sorcery, you murder, you commit adultery, you steal. Are you trusting in these, these, these bricks and stones? Are you trusting the fact that, yes, the, the king is a son of David, he's a descendant of David? And so the temple of old Jerusalem is now gone. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a living temple, now stands. It's being built by God's word and spirit. And here's where we learn again about the steadfast love of God, the commitment of God. Sunday after Sunday, you learn about that. You learn it in Bible studies. You learn it in personal family devotions. That contemplation, that meditation then leads to doxology. Verse 11, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. Let the villages around the city join in the choir and praise the Lord. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Which then leads now to our, the fourth stanza. The final stanza, verses 12 through 14. It tells us to go on a walkabout. Do Australians do that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> a walkabout. This stanza is actually the only part of Psalm 48 that calls upon us to do something. The earlier verses have noted that Yahweh is great in his city, that uh, Mount Zion is beautiful in its elevation, and the kings of the earth, they came, they saw, they lost. Shattered when they moved in their hatred against the Lord's city because he has proved himself a strong fortress for his people. But now the church, the, the, the psalmist tells the church to do something. Start going on a tour of this great city. Do a walkabout. Do you notice its towers? Take note of them. 
Have you counted its citadels? Take careful note of them. But then strangely enough, he sa it says in verse 14, this is God. And immediately our Christian and Protestant uh, antennae said, whoa, wait. You tell me to look at the towers, the citadels, the walls, and all those physical elements of strength, and then you say, this is God? Wait, we are Christians. We don't create, we don't make created things to be idols. Or would we? Or have we? Please keep in mind that anything and everything that God created has the potential to become an idol. Read Romans 1, verses 18 and following. Because if people do not find the true God, the true creator, then their eyes go back to look at things that are created, and they turn them into idols. Birds, fish, power, money, prestige, reputation. Anything and everything that is created potentially could become an idol. We then worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me flesh this out a little bit. What are the strengths that we can see in the church today? Great pastors. There are some. Sound doctrine. Also important. Yes, also important. And we need more, not less, catechism and instruction in the teachings of God's world. But will the doctrine, listen carefully, Will the doctrine by itself save us? No. Even the demons believe that there is only one God. They're pretty orthodox in their confession of the truth, but they tremble. They tremble. Or how about this? The bread of communion is a sign and a seal of the body of Jesus. And the wine is a sign and seal of the blood of Jesus. And that is what our eyes see. But if we trust the bread and wine, if we believe that eating and drinking those elements is how we receive Jesus, we would be sadly mistaken. That would be idolatry. It is faith, faith, that is the mouth that receives the body and blood of Jesus in communion. Our, our teeth don't press his flesh in communion. Now, how do we stay away from idolatry? Well, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it is only the Holy Spirit that can take hold of our hearts and guide our lives and guide our thinking in the right way so that our, uh, we see beyond what our physical eyes see, that our, the eyes of faith see Christ. He is the true strength of his church. He is the ultimate victor over his enemies. Uh, which reminds me, I think this is always a funny story, and I've never heard a good explanation for it. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, all these soldiers, the enemies of Christ, come to him, and Jesus asked them, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus, 
and they fall over backwards. Why? He told them the truth. I'm Jesus. Here I am. And they fall over. They came. They saw. They thought they won. But in fact, they lost. They lost. Brothers and sisters, do the walkabout. Take note of the many strengths that are visible in this world, in the church, and even beyond the church. But then give careful, prayerful instruction that all these visible manifestations of strength are pointing beyond themselves. <coughs> They're pointing beyond themselves to God, the Lord. Now, if that were self-evident, then you wouldn't need to tell the generation after you, would you? But you do. You must remind them of these truths. Not walls, not towers, not pastors, not teachings, not buildings, not gold or silver. The Lord is the true strength of his city. Teach them. Tell the next generation. You know, I tell my students in the States, you don't have to tell people to be ignorant. They can do that on their own. <laughs> right? You don't have to tell them to be ignorant. And so if merely looking at the towers and ramparts were enough, it would be self-evident. But you do need to instruction, instruct them. You see the strength of that wall? This reminds us of the reality that God is the strength of his people. And so Psalm 48 brings it all together. City, temple, mountain. But even more than that, it tells you today a good look at the city, the mountain, the walls. They all point to something beyond what our eyes can see. For those physical signs of strength will mean nothing if Yahweh is not there. If the Lord does not guard the city, the best soldiers will not be successful. They will not win. But all this requires faith. Not faith in what our physical eyes see, but what the eyes of faith can see and take in. It calls for you who are trusting on anything other than the Lord Jesus to abandon all hope in your righteousness, abandon all hope in your knowledge, abandon all trust in your good works. Not that those are unimportant, but it's Christ, Jesus, who alone saves. Let me tell you what, this is a real story. This really happened. One time a lady raised in the church her whole life she came to me and she said, Pastor, I just gave our deacons a check for $500. Now, Reverend, I know, I know. You can't buy your way into heaven. But it helps. <laughs> but it helps. She said that. God and walls, God and soldiers, God, it helps. Well, I didn't, I was so taken aback by that, I didn't know what to say at the moment, then thinking about her statement, I, I, would, have, I would have said, well, $500 helps, a check for $5,000 really helps, <laughs> and $50,000 is really, really going to put you in good, no. <laughs> we all sense how foolish that was. And yet we think, 
I trust in the Lord and God is with his people in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a fortress for his people in the presence of his Holy Spirit, a comforter who doesn't just come along inside and out there, 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 but a comforter who's got strength, power, gracious power to help you in all times and in all places. Believe on the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. For he said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I am with you to the end of the age. This is good news. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your gospel that is centered upon the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that we have a living Savior who is not at all frightened by the, the, the nastiest threats of his enemies, who is not afraid of their weapons. In fact, we demolish citadels by simply putting forward the truth. God is his king, Christ is our Lord and Savior, and he is the victor in all times and places. And Father, bless your church where it is facing persecution. We know that your people in some places suffer tremendously. The pressure on them is something that is difficult for us to imagine or appreciate. But Father, give your people that faith to see the living and powerful Lord, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.